You've heard of the Blair Witch several times. I gave you back the map. And it's all because of me that we're here now, hungry and cold and hunted. Welcome to Film Strip. I'm Jay. And I'm Nick. Thank you all for joining us for our review of The Blair Witch Project, starring Heather Donahue, Josh Leonard, and Michael Williams, written and directed by Daniel Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez. We're going to get into the details of this, but first off, Nick, welcome to the Film Strip and Continuous Play Universe, man. Thanks a lot. Yeah, glad to have you on. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell our audience what kind of stuff you tend to go for, what you watch. Oh, I tend to go for everything, man. Uh, I'm, uh, I appreciate a lot of all, all the movies out there. Uh, probably my favorite one is probably Goodfellas. That's my favorite film. And probably the Alien series is right up there with that. I'm a big Alien fan, too, so that, that would be kind of fun to do. We may have to do that. But we wanted to get something that was a little bit more into the scare factor. And what a better way to do that here than in October. We wanted to pick some uh, some different kinds of thrillers and stuff. And so you and I had talked offline about it and kicked around a couple ideas. And we decided, hey, why not do the two Blair Witch films? Blair Witch Project came out in 1999, and at the time, you know, everybody was talking about it, it was shot for like 20000 bucks, and they made, you know, $250 million on this thing, and it was people running around the woods. I mean, it was a phenomenon, man, when this movie came out. I just remember being in college at the time, everybody talking about this thing. Yeah, I remember, uh, I think I was 15 when this came out. Actually, when it came out, everybody actually believed in my high school that this was actually a real that this actually happened. And I remember just countless arguments about it where they're like, oh, that really happened. Yeah, these people are dead. They're missing. Families are going to sue the uh, movie producers. And I'm kind of sitting back on, yeah, okay. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so it, it did start that whole found footage craze, though. I mean, that's still going today, man. Apollo 18 came out this summer, and I haven't seen that, but it's basically, you know, the found Blair Witch footage of an Apollo mission to the moon that's attacked <laughs> by something. I mean, really, that, I mean, this, this craze began with this movie. And it's, I mean, how many other films have, have been influenced by it? They made a Halloween sequel that was basically found footage of people running around the house you know with michael myers so i mean it's and you know we're going to get into it kind of proper here but let's go through a quick plot summary nick and we start breaking down the movie a bit sure you know the 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 basic run of this thing is it's pretty simple folks student filmmakers heather josh and mike venture into the woods near burkittsville maryland place used to be called blair and they're filming a documentary about the legend of the blair witch who's credited with a string of heinous murders going back you know almost 200 years they visit a few spots where events are said to have taken place but it just looks like you know the woods However, after a few days, it's pretty apparent that they have lost their way and they soon find themselves surrounded by a terror that we can't see and we think we hear. One morning, Josh turns up missing, which sends Heather and Mike into a panic and they continue to hear his cries and agony in the distance. This ultimately leads them to an old house in the woods. Mike enters in with one camera, hears Josh's screams in the basement, goes down there, and his camera falls over, and we see Mike no more. Heather follows quickly behind, and we see her with just a few seconds. She sees uh, Mike facing a wall. She's hit. Her camera goes down, and credits roll. And that's really the whole movie. I mean, it's a pretty simple plot. And you said you were 15 when, when this came out. Yep. Like I said, I was in college, and I skipped it at theaters. I did not go for it. I actually wound up renting this when it came out that winter on video and watching it at home, did you go see this in theaters? I did, actually. I saw it opening weekend. Oh, wow. It was actually a whole family affair, believe it or not. I remember my uh, my aunts, my uncles, my cousins, we all went to go see it together. You know, it was like we saw the movie, and I was getting sick during it, you know, with all the shaky cam. And, I mean, I almost puked probably a few times watching this. But uh, I remember after the movie ended, we all went out to eat, and everybody I was with was just going on about how great the movie was, except for me. <laughs> so you didn't go for it the first time? No, not at all. I was just like, guys, that was awful. <laughs> you, you know, I, I'll tell you, as someone who grew up in the South and really grew up in the woods a lot, I was a Boy Scout, did all that stuff. I appreciated some of what they were going with, some of the scares. Because if you've never been out in the wilderness on your own for a little while, 
I mean, there's noise out there that you just can't recreate anywhere else. And your mind yeah. will start to play with you. And I didn't know what the point of this movie was when the first time I saw it. And we can debate whether or not it has one later. <laughs> but but I remember thinking to myself, eh, that would be scary if I hadn't spent any time out in Skymont, yeah. you know, or out you know out at Waterloo where I grew up and stuff. But you know, I had done that, so that didn't really scare me. I remember seeing this and the shaky cam stuff. I mean, I'd heard all about that, and I I remember getting a headache from it. <laughs> but it didn't really it didn't really affect me. I remember thinking about this movie for maybe 20 minutes after it was over. And then I, Nick, I had not watched this again until we watched it for this podcast. Of course, I've seen it, you know, pieces of it on TV and stuff and seen it parodied a billion times. But I remembered very little of it actually going in. I was sort of surprised when I watched it and started to put together the plot summary and stuff that there was a lot of this I did not remember. Mm -hmm. But I remembered one thing about it, that the story was really, really, really simple, that the whole thing was to watch three people in paranoia essentially lose their minds. Yeah. And so to me, that's always borrowed from a lot of different things, probably most directly from the way Stanley Kubrick shot The Shining and the way you watch Jack Nicholson just sort of slowly lose it you know, over that period of time. And there's a number of other films that have done that, but I don't know that that was sort of my initial reaction to it too. So I didn't, you know, going into this one, I didn't know what I'd think of it. Now, have you seen it since you saw it that time with your family? Well, as you said, yeah, I watched it again for this podcast, but before that, uh, I think I probably saw it once on like FX or something like that when it was going on. And I, I have to admit though, as much as I thought the movie was kind of lousy the first time I saw it, it did scare the hell out of me. Yeah, it did. I remember, uh, it's going to make me sound like kind of a wuss, but I remember uh, I couldn't sleep for the next couple of nights. Like, literally, like, I honestly, like, I normally, when I sleep, I, like, my bed's against the wall, and I normally kind of sleep facing the wall. I couldn't do that. Oh, wow. I was actually scared. <laughs> I was scared that, like, something was actually going to come grab me or, you know, whatever. Because, you know, at the end of the movie with, you know, the person with the not facing the wall, that's kind of like how I was envisioning myself of, like, sleeping against the wall. Oh, wow. That Yeah, that is creepy. Woo. Yeah, and I just, like... <laughs> I mean, I felt like such a wuss. I mean, it took like weeks for me to get over it. And even though I kept on saying that movie was bad, it still scared the hell out of me. Yeah, it still had an effect. Well, it you did. know, it, I, I will always argue as the horror fan that the things that always work best and are genuinely the scariest are the things that are really minimal in effort. Like the thing that always creeped me out about The Shining was the music. Mm -hmm. And the way that that music just sort of thumped in your head. And it's kind of the same way with Halloween. Like, that music always brings about a reaction in me when I see that. Exactly. You know? And so, and this film sort of works on that level, too. Though without any of that, and we should mention, you know, from the get-up of this, that, you know, half the... I guess half the story of this is really how it got put together. You know, it's it's all about the setup here. There's no music in this film. Everything that it's in it, you know, music-wise, is post-production but they had none, none of that in the the film proper and there's some noises at the front and at the end of it but there's no music in it so you you're asking improvisational actors to go into the woods with two cameras and shoot each other going to different places with no dialogue only with the the basic direction of you have to not talk to him today and you have to act like you want to get away from her and I mean, that's a lot to put on, you know, improvisational actors. So, I mean, what do you make of the whole setup of this, the whole bit, the student filmmakers found footage bit? Uh, I think it's a pretty novel idea. I mean, at least, you know, this will seem like it's like the first one that really came out that used that idea. And like I said before, I think like the whole approach of this movie, I think really brought people into the movie theater because I still think a lot of people thought it was real with the way the whole thing was filmed, with it being like, you know, stock footage and the whole marketing campaign for this was basically that this really happened. I remember even the sci-fi channel had a documentary about the actual movie, kind of like a, kind of like a faux documentary about like the Blair witch and, you know, these people were missing and how they found the film. Like it was in a pile of rocks and stuff. And, you know, I think just like that mixed in with how the shot film was shot really kind of made it like such a, you know, novelty type movie that it brought everybody in. Well, it became its own urban legend before it ever hit the, the theater. It did, yeah, correct, yeah. Yeah, I, I remember distinctly this being one of the first films that was heavily marketed on the internet. You know, in 1999, the internet was still pretty new to most of mm -hmm. us. Uh, web, websites were nothing like they are today. I mean, you know, every film today has a website two years before it comes out. You can go to the Avengers website right now. You know, and I mean, they, you know, they're, they're, they're built before they're ever Yeah, I think the Avengers shot. 2 is out. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, but but you know, back then in the late 90s, having a website for the film was usually an afterthought. That was something that was put together for like the video campaign, for the DVD mm-hmm. campaign. Well, this came out beforehand, and like you said, you, I mean, they had the faux documentaries, and that documentary is actually on the disc that okay. I bought, by the way. So I got to I watched a little bit of that, and I remember seeing that, but it was, this film really was all about word of mouth, because if you look at its box office performance, it wasn't until about the third or fourth week that it really started clipping into the high numbers, and it was never number one at the box office, but it turned in double-digit million weekends for about six in a row of its run after it started really slow because people saw it and they kept telling people about it. And you talked about it at school and you talked about it in class and you talked about it at the bar and at the coffee shop. And it was everywhere you went, there was somebody talking about this movie. So it was really a genius way to market a film. And and to their credit, I don't know how they would pull this off. Apparently, I don't, maybe the actors aren't that in demand, but you couldn't find those people anywhere. So you couldn't know if they were real or not, if they really were alive yeah. or dead. And I don't know how they pulled that off. I don't know that you could even do no, that No, with the today. IMDb's and everything, you couldn't do that today. It, it'd be almost impossible to, to try that again. But it does it does li- leave a, a mystique with the film of how real it is or not. I, matter of fact, I was only totally convinced that at least some of it wasn't based on something when I saw all three of them at some award show, you know, a year later. And I said, oh, well, okay, clearly they're all, you know, doing doing other things now. So um, uh, anyway, I guess we should get into this proper and sort of what the, the you know, this one's a little different than most of the film reviews we do because there's not really a plot to walk through. I mean, it's three people walking in the woods. I guess we just kind of hit some of the highlights here, but they start out and they're shooting this faux documentary or this documentary in the town. And I did like the way how they introduced the characters. You know, Josh and Heather apparently know each other and have some comfortability with each other. And Mike is the new one. Did you get that? Actually, I didn't. I, I thought they were like three uh, like school friends. But now, now, now that you mention it, though, though, it does kind of seem like Mike's kind of the odd one out. As the movie kind of goes along with how he reacts to everything Heather does. Yeah, it's it's like he doesn't know her, he knows Josh, but of course Josh knows them both. He's the thing that sort of ties them to, to Heather and Mike to each other. And I do think that makes for an interesting dynamic when Josh is removed from the group, and now you have these two people that are really mm-hmm. just strangers to each other. And and what their roles are, too. And we you know get into some of the, the film school stuff in a bit. But I, I did like the setup, and they're walking around this town, and they're talking to people, and I, I don't know... Like, are these actors that are planted, or are these real people in town? How did they go about getting these people in town to sort of go along with this story? Yeah, from what I read from, like, you know, the IMDb pages, it seems like they basically just got people off the street or kind of family friends or friends of theirs to just kind of, like, play along with them. They kind of gave them, like, some literature on the uh, the Blair Witch and, like, you know, kind of what to go off on, you know. But I think, actually, the uh, first part of the movie is actually my favorite with them all talking, you know, to, like, the townspeople. And just hearing their stories, especially the uh, religious woman, when she was recounting her, you know, seeing the Blair Witch and, you know, how hairy she was and how she, like, you know, opened up her, you know, gown or whatever she was wearing. I actually found that kind of creepy. It is. It's a real creepy setup. And, I, you know, I don't know that I was ever genuinely scared watching this movie anytime I've seen it, but there is a real creep factor to it. And I almost think it's one of those things that if you're, especially if you're watching it by yourself, if you're, you know, brave enough to kick all the lights off and really just sit and let yourself be absorbed into it, this is the part of the story that's either going to sell you on what's going to happen for the last, you know, 60 minutes of it or not. Because the first 20 minutes of it is where they set up all the important information. You get everything you need to know. You know, everything from the, you know, there's been hundreds of years that this woman, you know, was allegedly a witch and that woman talking about the furry witch lady that whose feet never touched the ground and all that to the story about the guy who made the kids face in the corner because he couldn't stand the, you know, them to watch him while he killed one of them, all of that stuff. And it is really creepy to hear all that. I I liken that to my memories of unsolved mm-hmm. mysteries. You know, when I used to watch that show as a kid with my grandmother, because that was something she loved to watch, I would get so creeped out by that show, but I couldn't stop watching it. I was like drawn to it. (laughs) But to this day, when I hear Robert Stack's voice or I hear that music, there's an instant chill that sort of comes over me. And I think that's the kind of scare they're playing for here. I think it's actually a really great way to get all the exposition out for the movie right away. 
Because, like, in a way, like, you know, with all the people telling their stories, you're getting, like, the whole history of the Blair Witch Project in the first, like, you know, 20, 20 minutes of the film, where later in the movie, they're not burdened with having to tell the audience, you know, like, what's, what's going on with, like, the seven rocks that are, you know, rock piles that are on the tent, where the guy in the beginning yep. kind of explains that with seven kids that were killed and how that kind of relates back to that, whereas, you know, another type of movie would kind of go into exposition right there saying, oh, these must be represent the seven kids that were killed. But you get that right away in the film. Well, it's it's a big gamble by the filmmakers, but it's also it's something to endear an audience to you. If you trust your audience to be smart enough to pick up on this stuff and hang on to it going forward, then you can throw little bits of it out here and there as they're wandering around lost in the woods and people will go, oh, that's just like when the guy said, or, you know, even at the end, when you see that one flash of him standing in the corner, all of it floods back, right? You know, so, and that's a really smart way to write a film. And I I will credit that this script for having the guts to -hmm. do that, to, we're going to give you the story in 20 minutes and then we're going to take these people in the woods. And the minute they get out of that car and go in the woods, there's no more exposition. It's them arguing yep. with each other and, that, and that's all it is you know it's like the whole rest of the movie is just basically character building you get to know each of them yeah. personally and stuff but then everything they run into runs back you know brings up the exposition that was brought up in the first 20 minutes of the movie which you know watching it again i really really thought that was a clever way of making the film yeah I, i'll tell you one of the one of my favorite bits of it is it's at the end of the first day when they've gone to coffin rock and they hear about the five men that went looking for missing children and they all got tied to each other in their entrails and all this you know i mean just the weirdest yeah. story and these two fishermen are telling it and you got one of them who's going yeah everybody knows this place has been haunted for years and the other one calls bulls on it <laughs> but but they are standing back to back to one another now anybody that's ever done any hunting or fishing the only reason you ever do that is so you can protect each other from things you can't see now that that to me was a neat little drop that these two guys look at it differently, but yet both of them are very aware of where they mm-hmm. are at that moment. And I thought that was kind of cool. I mean, again, it's another one of those little things to sprinkle in there for the audience that maybe on the first time through you don't catch it, but you watch it again and you go, huh, yep. that's interesting. Yeah, that was a very, very good point of the movie. And actually, I thought that was probably my, my favorite po- part of the movie was actually those two guys fishing. Because it, it, it yeah. had some, you know, some comedy in there with just kind of ripping on the guys. He's telling a story and, it, you know, it's so real life right there. Because, you know, how many times are you around a friend who's telling a story and you're kind of like, yeah, he's exaggerating, you know? It, exactly. Yeah. Everybody's heard that, especially, you know, the fish story. I mean, to, to frame it around that act is, is perfect. And some group fishing, I mean, you, you always hear these yep. things. It was a great time for stories. But there was always one guy that would tell something and was totally buying it. And the other one that's like, yeah, right. But even the guy that says, yeah, right, is still doing things that lets you know that he's not an idiot yeah. either. He's not standing off by himself. Saying, yeah, his body language doesn't standing, match what he's saying. Yeah, which to me is that would be the reaction of somebody who grew up around that area. You know, you know how it, it's like the kids that grew up in Haddonfield, right? Nobody went to the Strode house, <laughs> you know, or to the Myers house. Well, unless you, you, know? unless you unless you're going to go throw rocks years at for it. Reason. <laughs> yeah, is that well, you know, only after some people have been killed, yeah. right? But, but, but I mean, really, you know, there are people who would stay away from things. You can pick that out of any heart. Yeah. You know, they're, they're out there. And I like the fact that they're introducing, all, they're, they're borrowing all of these tropes, Nick, but they're using them in a real unique way. And like we said, they're doing it compressed because I don't, I mean, if I'm watching this movie the first time, I don't know what's, what we're doing mm-hmm. yet. You know, is this going to be the whole thing? <laughs> you know? And if it were, I I think it would be neat, but I'll tell you, I don't know that they could have sustained this. I think after that first day is when they have to start changing the dynamic of the film, and they wisely mm-hmm. do. Yep, I completely yeah. agree. So they get out in the woods. That I think the, the key to the second day is Heather's first admission that she got them lost the first day and went off the map, But but I did it on purpose. You know, and I've heard Heather Donahue talk about the way she framed her character was an experience of working with another director who could do anything as long as he had planned it out. But if it got off of that plan, it was all about it was just haywire and just couldn't take it, but always tried to maintain this sense of control. Mm -hmm. And I think the first thing you get is that Heather is a control freak. Oh, definitely. Definitely. She actually, I mean... Out of the three characters, she was the one that annoyed me the most. Just like her controlling <laughs> aspect. You know, we've all known someone like that. It was just like they take control even when they don't even know what they're doing. 
And that's the, that's what I got from her is that she's taking control of this film. She wants it done her way, even though she doesn't know what's going on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I I get the feeling that Josh is trying to be her friend and he's trying to support her. But at the same time, he's wondering, why are we lost? And Mike is just calling her out on it. Yeah. And I think you Mike, know? actually, I think he's a he's a representation of the audience, I believe. Yeah. Because like the whole time he's screaming, like, you're getting us lost. You know, what are you doing? It's exactly what you're feeling It's like, what is she doing? Yeah, and I think that it's it's an interesting way to look at the film because up until this point, like we say, it's been very exposition heavy. Now everything switches to Heather's point of view because she's on screen less than any of them, but she has more lines than both of them combined. Yep. So you hear her voice and you see her point of view, but you don't see her as much as you see the other guys. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a really neat way to do it because then she becomes this force behind the scenes that the audience can lash out on because yeah I'm I'm with you man she was the most annoying thing in the film you know I besides the shaky cam her and just the way she comes off is it just grates on you but I think it's supposed to yeah oh definitely I think it's supposed to I mean I read a lot of like reviews about the movie kind of ripping on her performance and everything but I think she played the part the way it was supposed to be played you're not oh, you're yeah. not supposed to like her yeah, exactly. You're not you're not supposed to like her. I don't know if you're supposed to like any of these people. I think maybe you're supposed to relate to Mike because he's your avatar as the audience, but I don't know that you can really relate to Josh. We don't know anything about him. Yeah, Josh is kind of a mystery character, but yeah, you're, I mean, you're right with Mike. I mean, it's Mike is saying what we're all feeling throughout the movie. It's, you know, yelling at Heather, you know, yelling at Josh. And yeah, I mean, the whole time I was just agreeing with everything Mike said up until, you know, the, I think it was like the third day. Yeah, that, you know, we'll get to that, but that—that's <laughs> when I think the movie kind of, you know, deviates from belie- you know believability to okay. It, st- it starts getting a little weird there, yeah. But, but before we get there, we—I mean, we got to hit a lot of stuff, you know. They're, yeah. They're walking around, and Heather is—is you know, they don't—they have the big the big sixteen millimeter camera that Josh is carrying around, which and she's shooting everything. Because she's trying to gather footage. Now, any good cinematographer, anybody that's ever directed a film, I had a chance to be a part of a student film once when I was in college. And I understand the idea of you want to always shoot more because you you can never have too much. It's easier to cut than it is to recreate. But she's shooting everything. And it's starting to wear on these other two guys. But she's the one that's noticing all the clues. So while Mike may be our avatar for our attitude and how we feel, Heather is the one that's still feeding us information. Mm -hmm. The piles of rocks. I mean, is that a cemetery? You know, all of that kind of stuff. The things that she's noticing, we're seeing through her lens. Yep. Now, what did you take the, uh, the pile of rocks meaning? Man, I don't know. You know, the first time I saw this, I I just took it as it was just piles of rocks, and then later on, I thought maybe this is part of the ritual of whatever is you know attacking them or chasing them. Now I look at it, and it's almost like these are markers of graves. You know, like I I think you could read it that way. I mean, what did you think? I thought it was a representation of the uh, story that the one guy told in the beginning of the film with the seven kids, because they did yeah. count out seven piles of rocks. Yeah. So that's what I took from it was. They stumbled upon, you know, whether it was actual, like, a grave, you know, the bodies were, you know, I don't think the bodies were buried. I think they said they found the bodies, but I think those are just kind of yeah. representations of the kids that were killed. Yeah. Ooh. I mean, I'm, I'm having a flashback as we talk about this. I remember, uh, if you've ever seen the TV version of the Stephen King book, It, mm-hmm. and the graves that Pennywise has dug while Bill's visiting his brother's grave, and it's one for every one of them that he's going to kill, that's in the book, too. And I, I thought about that as I watched this movie, and it flashed in my head again, is it's very much that idea of how evil will just screw with you. Yep. It'll just put things out there to let you know that I'm watching you. You know, and I don't know if that's how we're supposed to read this or not, but if you're paying attention and keeping up with this and you see that, it, it definitely brings back that creepy factor that you haven't had for 15 minutes or so. Yeah, with me, actually, I thought I thought more like the uh, piles of rocks were actually kind of like a warning in a way. You know, like they're going out yeah. in the woods and they're, you know, looking for this thing. And that's almost kind of like you're stumbling upon what already happened. And it's almost like in a way just being a warning to them, like, Okay, stop, you know, don't go any further. But, you know, they keep on going further, obviously. 
Yeah, well, because they're not going to stop. I mean, that's the the whole point, yeah. right? And then that night in the tent, we hear all the noises in the dark, which, I mean, if you're spending time out, all those crackling, you know, sounds and wood breaking and rocks moving and stuff, that can really start to creep you out mm-hmm. if you've never heard it. And they do this genius thing in the film is we got to turn off all the lights, no fire, no nothing. We, and they turn the camera light off. So all you hear is them talking in the dark, which immediately you've now just thrown the audience into the pitch black with them, which I thought was a great move. Yeah. Yeah, I was actually very surprised with that, you know, that they'd actually do that, just basically just do nothing but like an audio track, you know. And I thought it, I thought that was very, very effective because as I was watching it for this podcast, um, I watched it in my bedroom on my laptop and I pretty much watched it in the pitch black and, you know, that actually started to get to me a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it will. It, it does because you're in the blackness with yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like you, you, know. get the, you get the little goosebumps going on when that's going on where it's like, yeah, that is kind of creepy with those noises, you know, like what's going on out there is that, you know, your mind starts, you know, filling in the blank. And that's one of the things I kind of love about a lot of like lower, lower budget horror movies is they don't show you what's going on. We're like your, exactly. your imagination's filling in those gaps. And, you know, I'm sorry to say, but your imagination's, you know, 10 times scarier than anything they could ever show on film. You know what you're talking about, Nick? I read a real neat critique of this film once that compared a lot of it to Macbeth. And I won't get into all of that. But there's a quote in Macbeth that says, present fears are less than horrible imaginings. And I don't know if, if they're intentionally doing this or not, but that's the same thing you're talking about. What's actually real is nothing compared to what my mind thinks it is. Is. And they're playing with that in just a short little snap here in this. And I thought it's a, it a great move. I mean, it really, it really engages the audience when you've given them exposition and then you've given them, you know, 15 minutes of really nothing happening. You know, people just walking around kind of fussing at each other. Mm-hmm. And then you give them some, just a few minutes of scare. And then the next day they wake up and it's raining and they're trying to figure out what happened. And they are clearly deeper in the woods. You know, and I love love the whole bit about have you ever seen Deliverance? You know, because they're convinced it's locals who are playing it against them. Now, you yeah. talk about the power of a film to change people's perceptions. I don't know if you've ever seen Deliverance or not, but you'll never go in the woods the same again or on a canoe trip the same again if you've ever seen that. Yeah, I've I've um, seen Deliverance. Yep, <laughs> that's why I never go camping. But that's that's a story for another time. <laughs> yeah, but they're playing with that idea again. There, but they're introducing something to the audience. It's a misdirect, right? Well, is it just a bunch of locals trying to ward them off? Mm-hmm. Now, did you buy that at all? No, I, I, I didn't. I didn't buy that at all. Just because, I don't know. It just anytime like when that when that back to the scene with the darkness, what went to my mind was the exposition that we got in the first you know twenty minutes of the film was you know when they're hearing the noises, my mind's going to the story that the old religious you know crazy lady was saying with the hairy woman and you know the above the ground and the floating and stuff that's what i was kind of imagining when i was hearing those noises so even when he went back and was talking about like you know all these could be you know crazy rednecks or whatever it's just like because of the exposition that they got in the movie i just didn't buy that i never thought it was anything to do with rednecks and stuff i actually i thought that was mike in a way acting almost like in denial i I think you've hit it because he again if he's supposed to be the voice of the audience then he's that last bit. He, they're the last ones to come along, right? We'd be the last ones to come along for the journey. Mm-hmm. And Mike would be that guy. He's got no tie to this project other than he got hired in essentially to do, do the sound for it. Yeah. You know, so for, and he's already kind of said that, you know, this isn't what I come out here for. Yeah. You know? And so he's trying to, you know, distance himself and come up with the rational explanation while the other two aren't really sure what's happening. Heather probably leaning more toward, where it all goes mm-hmm. up to this point but again she's the voice of everything so in a way too i think he was almost i think that mike was still on the same page with heather and josh but i think that he was basically saying like you know rednecks you know deliverance almost in a way that he was not accepting what was going on he was almost trying to kid himself by saying that that's what i was getting by him just being like oh it's, it's rednecks it's rednecks or something and i think just deep down inside he knew that's that wasn't the case Oh, yeah, just a little humor to try to lighten himself up so that he could get ready to move on. Yeah. Because the, the whole point is they're going back a different way, and Heather keeps throwing out that two hours max we're going to be there, and they're really just walking in a big circle. Now, they don't realize that yet, but they're lost. Yeah. You know, and, they're, and then we get into the whole bit about the map. We got to have the map. 
Oh, you know, this is my oh. my word. The worst part of the movie by far is the oh, map. I'm with you. I wanted that map. I'm like, why we? This map has now become everything in this movie for about ten minutes, and it's oh, it goes on and on too long. And I don't know if the idea is that we're we're seeing people who are coming to the end of their rope with each other and they're getting a little ticked off with each other and that's supposed to fracture the group or what I don't know what the point of that part of the story was because ultimately they wind up coming back together multiple times and breaking up more times so I I, I don't know why we had to introduce this three days in I can see what they were trying to do I think this was supposed to be kind of the breaking point for them where it was like you know they lose the map and that was like their one thing that they had their one hope to get out of this mess was that map, and now the map's gone. And I think that was supposed to be the breaking point where it's like, you know what, it's it's downhill, you know, it's, you know, the breaking point for these characters. But, you know, they could have done it so well, too. And the way I thought it was going to end, it didn't end like that. That Mike kicked it into the, you know, the stream is probably the dumbest thing in the whole film. Yeah, I, there's no reason for him to have done that at all. And, that, and I think that point right there, because like I was saying, that Mike was kind of the character, you know, the the audience. And at that point right there, he completely rips himself from being the audience because the audience wouldn't no, do that. No, like, I could have bought it if Josh had lost it because he looks like a pothead, you know? <laughs> <laughs> or, or or they just lost the dang thing. See, I thought it was creepy, though. I thought it was creepy at first because she was saying it was in her pocket and then it was gone. Yeah, and yeah. I'm like, well, how did he get it to kick it then? Because I never saw Mike with it. Yeah, that it's, he Mike would have never got the map, and I think that's just, like, the biggest biggest insult in the whole movie is the whole map thing and i think it honestly would have been really great if it just disappeared they didn't have any explanation yeah. for it it was like it was just the blair witch somehow it just disappeared and maybe even later in the movie they might find little traces of it or something like that almost like it's mocking them about the map but just to have mike yeah. admit that he threw it in the stream it makes no sense for the character and it makes no sense for the movie it makes no sense for the situation they're in why again why would he do that why would he want ever have it why would he do it and if you're doing it just so you can have all of them go at each other in a real violent way well you don't need that you know i didn't need them to then decide we're going to tag team on Mike. yeah you know and I, I, there was enough contempt built up for Heather <laughs> that everybody's against her at this point in the audience. And most people are just kind of ant eh, with Josh. Mike's our voice. But when Mike, like you said, when Mike kicks the map or admits to kicking the map, you're going, well, why did you do that, moron? Now the audience no longer has an avatar. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, if they would have even like, you know, let's say Josh was the one that lost the map. It would have made so much more sense in a way because, you know, Josh ends up going missing. So you could almost add that aspect. Did he take off because he was ashamed that he lost the map? You know, you could add so many yeah. different more aspects into it. But by making Mike kick it in the river, I mean, that was just at that point that really took me out of the film because it was something that it's like, it's almost like in, a, in like a slasher movie. Why is she running upstairs? It's just one of those moments yeah. where it's just like it's brain numbingly dumb. Yeah, it makes no sense at all why you would go that direction when clearly the answer's over here. I'm I'm with you. Yeah, it takes it takes you out of yeah, it. Yeah, and like I said, there's because so many it, other places they could have went with it too, and they did the worst possible scenario for that. We don't need that. It sets up a, a ten minute stretch of the film that doesn't need to be there because what you're doing is I realize they're trying to kill daylight so they can get back to night and do more weird stuff and pile rocks outside of the tent and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But I'm with you. It would have been better if Josh had been the one that lost it or took it or whatever. And then he goes missing. And then those two go, what if he stole the map and has ditched us? Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. I mean, that sets up tension and stuff. It really undercuts a lot of it. I, I, I like that. But they do win it back pretty quick because they wake up the next morning. Well, they have the night where it's at more sound and it's three o'clock in the morning and all that stuff. And they wake up and they see these piles of rocks outside of the tent. And there's three piles. Mm -hmm. Now, you called it out earlier. There were seven piles for the kids that got killed. Now there are three piles. Are those supposed to be grave markers or what? I think it's a representation that you guys are screwed. You know, you guys are not getting out of here. You guys are dead. I think that's what that meant is that three, you know, three rocks, three people. No. And that's what it is. I gave you the warning. You didn't heed it. So now, well, you know, right before Mike admits to kicking the map in the creek, though, they do wake up outside of the tent and there's these piles of rocks outside of the tent. And there's three of them. I mean, and I don't, I mean, is that another warning or what? Yeah, I think it's, I don't think it's a warning. I think it's basically a representation that they're gone. 
I think that's what it is. I think at that point, you know, whatever the entity is, the Blair Witch, the, you know, whatever's going at, you know, messing around with them, was giving them warnings beforehand. And this is like basically they they crossed the line now. And I think that's what the three piles of rock meant is that those are your grave markers. You're you're done. So they see those things, then they go through the whole bit with Mike and the map issue, and then they run into the stick figures yep. everywhere. Now, that is one of the creepiest things about this movie, this, this, the straw man, the stick man, whatever you want to call it, the little five-pointed stick man mm-hmm. that sort of become the symbol of the Blair Witch Project. Yeah, that's, it's, that's a great symbol. It really is, because you see that even now, you know what that means. I mean, someone throws you the, shows you the five-stick stick figure, and you know that's the Blair Witch. I think that was just a really great moment in the film. And actually, from what I read about the film, was the ca- the cast didn't even know about those. Yeah, see, yeah, they sprung it, yeah. which is even better. And, you know, Nick, you pull them at the curtain here a little bit. You do a lot of design and graphic design and artwork for a living. Mm-hmm. But that's a great piece of art. It is. It's it's wonderful. And I, I love, you know, you got, you got the different sizes out there. You got the bigger ones. You got the smaller ones. And they really look, you know, they're all made out of the materials that you'd find in the woods. So it's really, I think it's... That right there, besides the opening, you know, 20 minutes of the film, is probably the, my next favorite part of the film. It's just them finding that and just, again, realizing we're in over our head right now. Well, it's also a payoff. You hear all these breaking sticks in the night, and then in the morning you see the, the fruition of the broken sticks. Yeah. Whatever or whoever has fashioned them in these shapes. That's true. You know, I didn't even actually put that together. That's a really good point. I didn't put that together with the breaking sticks and putting them together. It seems so obvious now. Yeah, well, and and, and, and now I don't, I mean, the film doesn't tell us that. I'm just going yeah. with it because I'm thinking at, for a payoff, though, as, as an audience member who's trying to follow this and sort of absorb it as I go, that's a payoff. It is. That is a great oh. payoff. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you usually don't get those payoffs in the middle of the movie. You get them at the end. Well, again, they feed it to it just a little bit at a time, mm-hmm. which is which is genius. And I mean, it really works well. I mean, it makes... It makes, again, for something ominous going on. They don't know what's happening. Mm-hmm. But that night, they hear the voices of children outside of the tent and yep. other noises and stuff like that. Now, that was creepy. Yeah, that was, that again was a great scene. I mean, like I said, you know, the movie kind of went downhill a little bit with the math thing, and right away it gets brought back up with the stick figures and then the whole, again, with the night scene. I believe this is where they're actually they're running at night, correct? Yeah, yeah, they get out and start running after whatever is out yeah, there. Yeah, and just even like, you know, just even talking about it, I almost get kind of goosebumps thinking about Heather's reaction as she's running and just kind of screaming, what is that? What is that over there? And you can't see it. You know, the camera's moving, and you're hoping just, you know, move the camera over to the left. I want to see what she's talking about, and it doesn't do it. And again, it goes back to the whole thing of, again, your imagination's filling in that gap right there. Well, you know, that's, and that trick has been used forever, right? It's what you don't see, but is implied that is, there's the terror, you know, and, and that's the real, I mean, that's the real hook of a movie like Jaws, mm-hmm. even today, right? Is that you don't see the show. Yeah, Jaws. Even. And I know that that's all part of the happy accident of that movie that they couldn't really make it work. So they didn't show it as much as they wanted, but that adds to the terror. Mm-hmm. And now they're borrowing that here. And it is this big tease of what is going to be seen, what is really there. Yeah. You know, it's like Michael Myers' shadow is just behind the bush. You know, if you watch Halloween once, you may miss it. But if you watch it a bunch of times, his face is behind everything. He's watching these people all day mm-hmm. throughout the day. And you may only remember a couple of the most memorable scenes where you've seen it. But if you watch that movie, he's everywhere. Yeah. And that adds to the creep factor. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I, I completely agree. You just don't see what's going on, and it's just like, it's it's creepy. It's creepy. This scene right here really creeped me out as well. I mean, as soon as it was over, I was actually kind of relieved because it was, you know, it was pretty intense. Oh, yeah. I mean, it really is. And now the thing we got to mention, when they saw the stick figures earlier, Heather took one of them, one of the small ones. Mm-hmm. And I, I immediately, I thought, why are you taking that? You know, and I know as a character why she would do it. She's the director. She's trying to direct something. She's trying to come up with something, right? So she's the reporter. She's always gathering information. But as a human being, I wouldn't touch it. Yeah. No, I wouldn't either. And I think it was actually another kind of a missed opportunity with the movie because you could have set up a little bit more of a, you know, dynamic between her and Mike or even Josh, but probably Mike would if he found out that she took that. Yeah. And they do that again later on after Josh goes missing. They miss these opportunities sometimes in this movie. And it just, the mark of the first time filmmakers is that they're, they're missing. Yeah. And you know, they, they wake up the next day and Josh's stuff is what has been messed with. Yeah. You know, and, and I was, and I immediately asked myself, why did he get singled out? Yeah. I, 
I kind of saw where it was going because I knew that the, it wouldn't be the three of them. And I kind of figured this was kind of the first, you know, clue that he's the first one that's going to get targeted. And it turned out I was right with that. I don't know. I don't know what it is about him that makes him the, the easiest target or the first target. But I never I never got why he was targeted first. But it immediately raised the stakes because by saying that now, by invading his personal space in a real way, you now know that this evil is not just going to leave stick figures and rocks for him. Yeah, now it's, you know, messing with him personally. And I think the reason they they decided to go with Josh being the one missing was because, you know, Mike was, again, the audience and Heather was the main character. So I think it kind of, Josh was kind of that one that was kind of left out in a way. Well, but for a brief moment, they allowed Josh to now be the audience because he turns the camera on Heather and he does that whole, we're still making movies, aren't we, Heather? And he just goes off on her and she loses it. Yeah. You know I mean? She is, she really gets attacked and Mike comes to her defense, which is an odd dynamic to set up, but you can tell Josh has really lost it. Mm-hmm. Like he is the first one that has completely flipped. And and for a minute there, I wanted to feel sorry for Heather because even though she is contemptible and most of this is her fault and she's doing things that you, you shouldn't do, I don't know that she deserved that either. You know, you can tell like, and, and I don't know if and maybe they did that on purpose to try to bring us back around to her side for a little bit because they know they're about to take Josh out of the dynamic and we're going to have to follow somebody. Mm-hmm. And she's the one with all the dialogue. Yeah, I think another point that they miss in the movies, I think after Josh left and then you kind of see the way, you know, Heather's breaking down and almost like losing her sanity in a way is it really could have took an opportunity to have Mike become the main character. You know, they could have done like a little switcheroo right there because he does hold the camera through a lot of the rest. You know, the remainder of the movie, he has basically half the camera time, especially when they get to the house. So it could have been really a great opportunity for the filmmakers to give Mike the, you know, the starring role for the rest, you know, last 20 minutes of the film. Because, again, it's the audiences, you know, along for the riot, and Mike is the audience. Right, right. But they do they do one last misdirect with us here with Josh. That night in the tent, they're not even saying they're sorry anymore. They're just talking and being jokey with each other. And I miss mashed potatoes and cheeseburgers. I got a cheeseburger in my back pocket. <laughs> you know, they're, they're all kind of cool with each other again yeah. for a minute. They're trying to be neat. But then the next morning, Heather wakes up and she's like, I just want everyone to see Mike is right here and he's dead asleep. And she goes outside and Josh is gone and don't know where he yeah. is. Just poof. poof. <laughs> and, and I thought, wow, now we've really raised the stakes. Yeah. And they basically spend the whole day waiting for him. They don't go anywhere. Yeah, which I actually I think that's completely believable because, you know, if he's disappeared, you know, let's say he went off to go, you know do number one in the woods or something, you know, he may have just got lost or something. So of course they're going to stay, but you know, stay where they are and hope that maybe he finds his way back. But I think deep down inside though, especially from like their facial reactions and everything, they kind of thought that something happened. Yeah. And I mean, the camera's left behind, Mm -hmm. but his stuff is gone, which, you know, why leave the camera, you know? So that's lets you know as an audience, well, it's clearly not people because anything of value like that, somebody would have stolen Mm -hmm. This is something else. And then that night, of course, they immediately pay that off because you hear Josh screaming in the night and they go running out into the darkness. Yeah, that's another great scene was with that. I mean, just hearing him scream just in the background and you they can't tell where it's coming from. It's almost like it's coming from around them completely. Yeah. You know, it's it's in front of you, it's in back you, it's to the right, it's to the left of you, and they just can't zone in on where he's coming from. And that just, I think, just adds so much more to the terror again because you're not seeing what's going on. Yeah, so you're so disoriented, it's just like you're running through the world. Exactly. Yeah, I think, you know, it's a great moment in the movie. I think, you know, it's probably something to do with the low budget that they can't really show you what's going on. But, you know, if you had a director like Eli Roth or something doing it, I mean, he would have showed you every little, you know, every little thing that was going through him plus more. But I think, you know, that's why I don't like his movies. And I like something more like this where it's, again, it creeps you out of heck of a lot more that you don't know what's going on oh well, yeah i mean if you had handed this to rob zombie you know i mean we'd be you know drinking out of somebody's skull right? yeah you know I mean, heather it, heather it, would be a stripper yeah. and mike would be a redneck <laughs> yeah. and you know josh would be a meth dealer <laughs> exactly i mean it would be it would be a completely different dynamic if somebody like that had a hold of this but you know they're running around they're hearing him scream in the night and they they're sitting there and what's you know it ends with them back to where they started and they're they're sitting there talking to each other going, don't fall asleep. Don't fall asleep. Cause they're both afraid they're going to wake up and one of the other ones going to be gone. Right. Or they might be the one that's gone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you're, it's, something's going to happen. But of course they do wake up and you know, they're, 
they're both still there, and Heather sees this bundled pile of sticks, mm-hmm. you know, held together by pieces of Josh's shirt. And Mike is over there, like, rocking back and forth, which is, I mean, he's lost it. Heather unwraps that bundle, and, I mean, are those cut-off fingers? Because that's how I've always seen that. I saw that as teeth. I don't know what it is, but it's this bloody pile of something. Yeah. And she completely flips out. But she <laughs> doesn't tell Mike. You know, why Why not at that point? I think, again, for the audience, again, it's right now, you know, you're saying it's fingers, I'm saying it's teeth. We don't really know, because they, really, they don't hold the camera on it for more than, like, four seconds. So yeah. you don't know what that is. And I think that's the reason why she never says, oh, yeah, that's his fingers in there or something like that. It's so much more creepy not knowing what that was, except for knowing that, you know, that's something that shouldn't have been in there. You know, that's something that was a part of Josh. But you don't know what it is. And I, I think that just adds so much more to the creepiness of the whole movie is, you know, just not knowing. And then a number bit of, of symbolism here, and it sets up what happens that night. Heather washes the blood off of her hands in the creek. And she just keeps talking to herself in sort of this rhythmic, it's going to be okay. We're just going to keep moving. I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be, she keeps doing that, you know, mm-hmm. and all of that plays up to that night, which is probably the most famous scene in the movie is that teary apology. Oh, of her looking into the camera. Now on one level, Oh, it's like, wipe your nose, chick, you know, yeah, I, <laughs> but on the other side of it, when you look at it in context, it all makes sense. Oh, it does. The way she's apologizing to their moms, you know, cause at that point is when her character, completely takes responsibility for everything that's happening. You know, she's, she's yeah. completely apologizing because she's hoping that someone's going to see this film eventually. And she's apologizing to everybody saying, you know, this is my fault. I screwed up. I am so sorry for everything. And it's, it's a good scene and a bad scene, in my opinion. I mean, like you said, wipe your nose. You know, Heather's not a very attractive <laughs> woman, so it is kind of hard when you got the extreme close-up looking at all her pores and everything. But, you know, but it, but it is a good scene. It's just not, I don't think it's very filmed. Very it's well, it's but. not shot well. And I, I think there could have been other ways to do it, but I like the emotion and the raw emotion of it. Maybe without the extreme close up, it would be a little, little less annoying to watch. Yeah. But if you just sort of let it suck in, the last thing she says is what really says it all. You know, I'm sorry. I was very naive. And now we're out here hungry, cold, and hunted. Mm-hmm. She knows there's no way they're getting out alive. Yep. She knows that they've crossed that line. Yep. I think she, at that point, she basically, you know, did what the audience has done from, you know, probably 20 minutes prior as they added up everything, you know, the rocks, the stick figures, Josh being gone, dismembered body parts. And now I think she just knows that she's done. And I think it's just, it's just her just, you know, basically giving her last will and testament. That's a good way to say it. And, and wisely, they don't let that linger at all because boom, she hears a noise and just shudders. Mm-hmm. Just that look on her face and the fact she starts shaking and they both go, what was that? And then they hear Josh clearly mm-hmm. in the distance. Yep. And, you know, before it's like, could that be Josh? Was that Josh? It's kind of sounded like Josh. It is very much that actor doing that voice. Yep in the distance and it's closer because it's loud. Yep. They grab a camera, they run to investigate and they come upon the house. And it's a great setup. It's, you know, perfect as to why they would go into this house. But the big thing is why would they bring the cameras in? Well, at that point, you know, and, th- and you make a good point there. Why bring the cameras? But Heather makes a point at least twice earlier on that, well, you know, I'm just wanting this to get captured because this is a thing. You know, we're going to look at first. She says, we're going to look back on this and laugh about it, you know. But at some point, I think she realizes that we're making our either our last will and testament or at least a record of what has happened to us out here. And at, and I think Mike buys that, too. Otherwise, he would have grabbed that camera and chucked it in the woods. Yeah. Now, there's another reason you could also use the practical. There's a big light on top of the 16 millimeter. That's true. You That's know? true. So so that could you could use that as logic, too. But I'm with you. You know, why why take the cameras? Well, why not? You've taken them through all of this. Yeah. But me, but me looking at it, though, it's like, you know, if I heard my friend in there, it's like, you know, I'm dropping the camera and I'm going in there, you know grabbing the biggest stick I can and just, you know, praying for the best, you know, even though I probably know that nothing good's going to come out of it. But I just think the camera, obviously they have to have the camera because of the film. But I just think, you know, that would really be kind of their, the last priority in the whole thing. I mean, your friend's crying, probably getting killed or whatever thoughts are going through your head. Camera is not what you need. <laughs> I, and I'm with you. I don't think you're wrong. At this point, though, I'm willing to give them this, if for nothing more than the light yeah. that's on the camera. 
If, if that's all I've got to go with, I'm willing to go with it. But I think at this point, they've earned the craziness to take a camera with them to go after their friend yeah. one last time. At least for me as an audience member, I'm, I want to see it too. And I, and I can see it from Heather's point of view, though, too, you know, because Heather's a little, she's still out there with, you know, the whole one and document everything. But Mike taking the camera, that's, that's kind of hard to get in a way. Because Mike was, Mike was always before that, like, why the hell are you filming this? Why are you doing this? You know, turn off the camera, and now suddenly he has the camera. Yeah, it, it is a little odd. And, and I guess it's because they're going to get separated in that house, and they want you to see the two points of view of what happened. Yeah, exactly. And, and it does allow them, and the directors talk about this in the commentary track, uh, which I don't recommend anyone listen to. But, <laughs> but if, you, if you were to do so, what you do, what they do a lot of in this film, but particularly in this house, is you see Mike's point of view, but you hear Heather's Heather talking. Mm-hmm. So it's his camera picking her up, and then vice versa. Yeah. So they do a lot of that to disorient you in the house. You know that that was one of their tricks. And I mean, what a weird, creepy, cool house. I mean, you got the kids' handprints. Yeah, that was really creepy. The, I mean, yeah, God, that is just weird. I mean, it just gives me goosebumps talking about. Yeah, I mean, was that blood? Or what was that? I don't know. That's the thing. It's because it shot on that 16. It's black and white. Yeah, was it dirt? Was it blood? I mean, and then you remember also, only back to the exposition part of the 20 for, you know, the first 20 minutes of there's seven kids in that house that got killed. You know, those are obviously those kids, you know? And it just yeah, it adds a big, whole, I mean, it's, it's all going through the back of your mind as you're watching this. Mike runs downstairs chasing the voice of Josh, comes around a corner and boom. You know, yeah. And, and his camera's on the ground. You know. Yeah. So we, it's it's a good it's a go. good scene, but then you know just thinking back about it in retrospect, it's just there's so many problems I have with it. You know why they would run into the house with the cameras? Why once they get in the house they would separate? You know stay together and and then I mean but again I understand what the filmmakers are trying to do, and again I, I think it's just kind of a. They're first-time filmmakers, and this all just falls into them. Just you know, well, they had, they had a lot of different ending shots for this, and and the, all all of it is pointing up so Heather can chase that noise into there, and she's the one that gets the final shot where we see Mike standing in the corner. Remember the kids stand, one stands in the corner and doesn't look while the other one's killed, and then Heather goes down and her cameras mm-hmm. are running, and that's it. And and it's all to set that up. And some of the read shot stuff. I mean, she runs into a, you know Mike crucified essentially on the stick figure thing in multiple variations. Oh and man, that would have been terrible stuff. See, and that would have been horrible. And I agree. I'm, if they'd have put that in there, that would have been really cheap. You know, that I'd have hated that. I don't really care for the way the ending goes now, but that would have been the wrong movie in a movie that's been so subtle. That would have been, that would have been Eli Roth or Rob Zombie. Yeah. That would have been, you know, exorcism of, you know, or the last exorcism type ending where it's just like, where did this come from? Yeah, it comes know? out of nowhere. Yeah, it's just, that's that's weird, you know. But what about that ending, particularly Heather's point of view ending? I think we're both right that Mike's is not terribly satisfying. But what about Heather's? What is it that happened? I think, it, again, it goes back to what that guy was talking about with how he would have one of them stand in the corner because he didn't like them watching the eyes on him when he killed their friend or killed the other one. And I think I, I th- killed her somehow. I mean, I, I don't know how. Big club. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I guess what I'm wondering is a baseball bat. I mean, what what happened? You know, did he bun her to death? I mean, what what happened? I think it was and, again a missed opportunity because again you got the camera, which is you know just like a it was a static shot at the end where it was aiming against the wall, and you could have added in some like you know real creepy sound effects or something just right at the end. You know what I'm saying? Well, yeah. What about all three of them screaming? Together? Yeah, something. You know, something more than what they something. gave us. I mean, it, it's still a decent ending. I mean. It's it's very much out of left field with the ending, but it's just again I think they could have done so much more with it. But in hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah, I mean, it was, well, it's it's better than the gore ending, which is the other stuff that the studio wanted. And when they looked at it, they're like, yeah, I mean, at least somebody had the sense to go, no, that wouldn't work. Did you did you actually read about what the first draft of the monster? No, was I didn't. Be? It was actually all right. You got to bear with me. <laughs> A giant. Stick figure. I am not <laughs> kidding. You can look it up on IMDb trivia right now that the original script wow. had them being chased around the woods by a giant stick figure. <laughs> so, so pumpkin head stick figure is going to chase the Blair Witch kid? <laughs> that would have been even yeah. worse. So, I don't think I think you do that in Blair Witch Five. <laughs> I don't think you do that in the first one. Wow, I'm glad they changed their mind yeah, on that. that too. <laughs> Uh, the wicker man comes yeah. alive. 
how and actually have you ever seen um the todd mcfarland blur witch toys uh, yeah. yeah. What do you, you think about those monsters? You think it was a representation? Yeah, they're, they're yeah, horrible. They <laughs> I mean, you got you got you got the uh, yeah. Dracula werewolf one, and then you got the half naked tree woman. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know. You know, Tom McFarlane can do some fantastic stuff, but uh, uh, this was a bit of a stretch. Yeah, that was, and it's like I'm, I look at those toys, and then it's like I kind of look back to this movie, and it's like. Those don't help me, <laughs> you know. Yeah, but it doesn't doesn't explain anything either. Yeah, you know the the one I love the one that has like the hair in the face. It's like cousin it, but with a the pickaxe. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Of, co- of course, it's got to have some type of weapon. I mean, come on. It's, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. It fought against Spawn sometime. You know. <laughs> yeah. It's on, hey, it's that could have been that could have been the third Blair Witch. You know, Spawn versus the Blair Witch. <laughs> Actually, that could have been a better version of Spawn, but that's a that's another podcast for another day. So, well, Nick, we're at the point of the podcast where we give our final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn rating for the film. So, what are yours for the Blair Witch Project? My first initial viewing, like I said, when I was fifteen, I hated this movie. I thought it was stupid, and I was almost kind of blacklisted from my family for movies for a while because everybody was in love with this movie. And I remember sitting down at dinner, going, "You guys are freaking nuts." But over the years and just, you know, kind of maybe just my maturing and just kind of like, you know, watching a lot more movies and seeing, you know, movies like the Eli Roth movies, the Rob Zombie movie, even the new John Carpenter crap that comes out, you know, just like how movie makers that go in the exact opposite direction where they give us more and more and more, you know, the Saw movies where they give us gore and, you know, the monsters and stuff like that. I came to kind of appreciate what this was trying to do, where it was like it left it up to the audience to kind of decide what was going on and what was going after these people. And I guess I actually really kind of enjoy this movie now. I mean, it does have its, it's bad moments. It's, you know, stupidity with the map, extreme close up and everything. But for the most part, I think it's actually a fairly well-made movie that has real genuine scares in it. I would have to recommend this to anybody who obviously hasn't seen it. I I guess for my popcorn rating for this movie, I'd have to go with the medium with some fresh extra butter on it. I mean, it's nothing great, but it's still a good movie. It's creepy, and it really was a novelty for its time. And like I said, it's it's kind of refreshing in a way. I mean, you get so many crappy, overdone horror movies, and a nice little refresher, almost like the original Halloween or the original Alien, or you know, movies like that, where it's just kind of down to the grim basics, you know. And that's what I that's what I enjoy. So I, I recommend it. Yeah. You know, Nick, I, I I feel very similar about this the, the way you do. When the first time I saw it, I didn't think there was anything big deal about it. I just thought, eh, you know, it was there. And having not watched it again through all the way for more than a decade, watching it now and the you know knowing the number of films I've consumed and a lot of the modern horror that I've watched, I, I really do appreciate what they're trying to do here. They're, this film has flaws. It's got major flaws in it. They're all the flaws of first-time filmmakers, though. And I think the, the genesis of what they've got here, the root story, is something that is really good. And the way they go about executing it, with a, a couple of missteps here and there, for the most part, is really solid. I mean, they got, you know, if it's a football game plan, they got a couple turnovers in there they need to work on. But for the most part, it works. And it works in a real way. I don't think this is a movie you can watch with a group of people, though. I think you'll sit there and make fun of it, and, and it'll become... It's kind of like the way if you watch the movie Sling Blade. If you watch that by yourself, you have a totally different reaction to it than if you watch it with a group of friends. And I think Blair Witch Project is very much the yep. same way. It's it's really good. It's got some... It's got some creepy moments in it, if not downright scares, and ultimately it works. The ending is a real bumping point for me because for years I've said that I didn't think they earned that ending. But now knowing what they were going to go with, <laughs> it's by it's by far the best option they had. <laughs> and 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 I'll say in the end, if I'm not totally satisfied with it, I'm I'm okay that I'm not because I have to remind myself of the way this film is, is you know, put together. Brian and I talked about this when we reviewed Donkey Punch that we felt like the ambiguous ending of that wasn't earned by the film, that we needed to see some resolution of that. And I, I felt going into this, I was going to say the same thing about Blair Witch, but actually having watched it again now, I think it's, I'm okay with the fact that it ends with, with really no explanation other than what the audience can put together for mm-hmm. themselves. And the fact that the filmmakers are going to ask us to do that, I'm willing to go along with them on it. So, yeah, I, I'm big on it. I think it should be seen. Again, probably something to watch by yourself, not with a group of people. And I'm going to go large popcorn on it. I do think it is, it's worthy 
of that moniker because it is a good original idea. And gosh, when this came out in 99, I mean, how many not original ideas were there in horror movies? I mean, they, they were dead. And then this thing took it a different direction. So now the funny thing is, Nick, they did a sequel to it. <laughs> and um, I don't know if you've ever seen Book of Shadows, Blitter Witch 2, but... I don't know that I could find two more disjointed sequels than we'll have in this series. <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't seen it yet, but I did pick it up on Amazon used for 69 cents. So I don't know what that says <laughs> about the movie, but um, I'm going to give it a go. So, well, Nick, man, thanks for being here. We'll have you back again next time for Blair Witch 2. Sounds good. And, folks, like we teased before in the Donkey Punch episode, lots of thriller kind of scare movies. Some of the things that we just wanted to do that were a little different during this time of year. You know, we've got Donkey Punch. We're doing Blair Witch 1 and 2. And then Brian and I are topping it all off with Leprechaun 2. We're going back to visit the Leprechaun series for reasons yet to be explained um, that we're going to release for you right before Halloween. So you can find that again at ContinuousPlayPodcast.com slash movies. You can also check out our sister podcast, The Art of Slaying, the Buffy the Vampire Slayer retrospective over on the Buffy page and check through our archives on Filmstrip to see the other movie retrospectives we've done. Got all kinds of stuff in there. Batman, romantic comedies, you name it. We've done a lot of variety of it. So if you want more horror, we got a little bit of that in there too. So check it out and we're glad you're along for the ride. Until next time, for Nick, I'm Jay. Thanks for tuning in to Filmstrip. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Visit our website, continuousplaypodcast.com for more reviews and episodes. All content used or discussed in this podcast are the property of their respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act Section 504C2, Title 17.